Pilot Boys in the building. Welcome to the Pilot Boys podcast, where you'll get the real on all things sports, music, pop culture, and current events. I'm Ekadon here with my co-host, V. The NFL is here. The NBA playoffs are here. Mamba mentality for life. Today is September 24th, 2020. Thank you guys for tuning in. I know you can be anywhere in the world, but you're here with us. We are quarantined and social distancing due to the pandemic, but still going to figure out a way to bring you a show at all costs. On today's show, we have two very special guests. The first guest is Columbus Woodruff, who is the market director of FUDA. It's a very, very, very dope, inspiring story and just an entrepreneur that you really, really want to hear from. Our second guest is Coach Zach Smith from Menace to Sports, and he's going to talk to us about all things college football. We will also do some news and notes, touching on some very important topics from the NBA, the NFL injuries, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and more. Don't forget that our Patreon subscribers will get our episodes on Wednesdays, a night early. These donations help keep our show going. If you want to help keep us on air, you can donate at www.patreon.com forward slash Pilot Boys Podcast. Don't forget to grab some wristbands and face masks at shop.pilotboys.com. And be sure to leave us a five-star rating and comment on Apple. Let's go. Where the Pilot Boys at? You are listening to the Pilot Boys podcast. We are joined by a very special guest, Columbus Woodruff, who's a marketing director for FUDA, also an entrepreneur who's just an all-around badass. We're very grateful to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. How you doing? Uh, I'm doing great. Thank you, gentlemen, for having me. I'm extremely excited. Yeah, excited man, to, it's uh, to finally connect. <laughs> Get you on. Yeah. Obviously, we've been following you for a long time and knowing you for a while and just seeing all your different moves. And again, just amazed about how you always, you know, make something out of nothing or uh, just create something that's so amazing. And so we really want to talk to you about that today. Thank you. Yeah, starting starting from the beginning, I think the thing that's that's always stood out to me about you is that all of us come up with these aha moments and have ideas that we think could potentially change the world or make us a lot of money. But 99.99% of us never get past the idea phase. What's always stood out to us about you is that you're the guy who has that aha moment and comes up with an idea, then gets to work in actually executing and making that a reality. And I think, you know, before you became an entrepreneur, you were a basketball player. Um, And I think a lot of your competitive nature and your desire to win at what you come up with comes from that. So I wanted to start there where you were a basketball player. You were actually a college level basketball player, but it, a point came where you realized your hoop dreams were coming to an end probably, and that you had to figure out how to take care of and feed your family in another way. So if you could just take us through that transition to start from athlete to entrepreneur. Yeah, sure. I think that um, it, being an athlete in general, you have this competitive nature but I think there's something to be said for the non-star athlete, which is what I would consider myself. Um, mm. I was somebody that um, in college, I got to play a lot, but I got to play a lot because I worked really hard. Yeah. Um, nothing was, nothing came natural. I was the kid in the weight room. I was a kid uh, pushing everybody in practice. I was a kid that everybody was like, dude, come on, we got these wind sprints down to a science, quit running so damn. <laughs> and I'm trying <laughs> to get minutes. These guys know they're going to play. 
I know that I was only going to play if I outworked them. And mm -hmm. I think that, that that was probably what basketball taught me. Uh, I was I was good enough to get a scholarship, not good enough to make any noise. And never did I have any delusions that I was ever going to be in the NBA. So, mm -hmm. but it was a path for me. And so I knew from early on, unlike you and Mecca, who became lawyers and getting master's degrees, some from the most prestigious universities in America, my work ethic and hard work and being competitive was my gift. It was not going to be, um, I guess I'll take that back a little bit. I was going to say it was not going to be my brain, but I think that was the mentality from, um, from being young because... I didn't realize what my brain can do until I was in college, until I yeah. started getting exposed to things that fascinated me, like entrepreneurs, people's families that I would meet and their families would come to school and I'd meet their parents and, oh, my dad owns this. And my dad. That was fascinating to me. And I felt that was my path. Entrepreneurial dash anything. And so, yeah, basketball was the start. Um, the competition in basketball, but I, I really believe that kind of being the underdog, if you will, also played a big part in that. Let me ask you a question about the hard work thing, because I think that's it's a very it's often talked about, but not really. It doesn't people don't really go in depth in terms of how you get there. Right. Is this do you believe that? First of all, how do you feel like you became that way? And then secondly, do you think that that's something that you can actually teach somebody or is it one of those things that's either in you or not? It's a tough one. Um, I'm going to answer this in two parts. Uh, so okay. number one, um, I, I got it from um, my father and my stepfather. Now, I want to say this as respectfully as I can. You know, both of them were gentlemen who enjoyed um, life, um, enjoyed to come home and have a couple of Dr. Peppers and um, <laughs> <laughs> and didn't seem to be uh, what you would describe as a leader or someone you would look up to in terms of that, mm. right? But I've never met any two men that never stopped working, mm. yeah, ever. Mm -hmm. So you know, you take you take you know um, the fact that they were dealing with maybe some demons and 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 refer and you know kind of going to a bottle or what have you, whatever helped them get through it, but they never ever stopped working. And so learning it, I did learn it. Mm -hmm. um, I learned that, man, if you just keep working and keep working and keep working and you can, you can function. Yeah. And in the town I grew up in, Ashland, Ohio, you know, it's like modern day Mayberry, you know, getting out of high school and getting a job in one of the factories was making it yeah. in a sense. Um, that was never what I wanted. But these two mm -hmm. men taught me that work ethic was everything. They just mm -hmm. never, ever stopped working. I never seen my dad tired ever, never. Mm -hmm. he, he got mm -hmm. up every day at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning. I don't care if it was Saturday, Sunday. And he always, he never let us use the excuse of we didn't have time. If we didn't do something, his first question would be, what time did you get up? <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. so if he got up at 4 in the morning, he would just be like, if you got up at 3. Could you have got it? Right. Oh. Yeah. So that was one part. Now, the second part is the work ethic side. It's the one thing I've hired a lot of people over the years. And it's the one thing that I always say it is tough to define or decipher or find out if someone has that in an interview. 
And it's to me, it's the number one quality that anyone can possess because I feel like I can teach anybody with work ethic how to do something. Mm-hmm. I can't teach anybody that thinks they know everything with no work ethic, and they might know everything. Yeah, but I can't teach them anything, and so right. I think it is the number one quality. I think you're right, Mecca, that not enough people uh, focus on that. I've I've always told. I used to have a um, a blog. Uh, years ago, and it was actually called Don't Forget to Work. Mm. That was the name of my blog. Um, I did it up until I left uh, until I left Cleveland and moved to Houston. But it was all about success stories and people and, and, and because owning a printing company, I would meet a lot of people who own small businesses. And you listen to their story. And I guarantee you, in the middle of that story, someone says, I was just working my ass off. And I love that. That's mm-hmm. it's like the part of the story I'm waiting for. It's like, yeah, okay, good. Yep, you bought one lawnmower. Okay, cool. <laughs> right. Okay, you're putting your door. And I was just out there working my, yes. And so, yeah, that's a big part. Yep. Um, and so you're one of your first forays. Um, we share, we all share this actually, because this is one of the uh, first things Mecca and I did as entrepreneurs was to become a promoter, right? And we always talk about the value of that experience as as promoters in in any business you go into because you're running the show, you're networking, you're trying to figure out a way to make money. So take us into that that part of your journey. How you decided? Hey, I'm going to be. I think you were you started as a concert promoter. This is what I'm going to do, and how you approached becoming successful at it. You know, I, I think that anything. I'm someone that is not ashamed to admit that sometimes you need a little bit of luck. And um, and although I considered myself a promoter trying to put on events that were slightly upscale, and I felt like that was the niche in Cleveland, there were uh, 8 million places to go if you just wanted to bang your head and watch yeah. the fights close down the club at the end of the night. And <laughs> I wanted to do something that actually uh, um, made people feel comfortable that was a little more exclusive, um, um, lie about how many tickets were left just so so people would want them more. But why I say luck is because um, people may may or may not remember this, but there was a baseball strike. And the baseball strike uh, was right in when it happened. This was in 94, 95. um, The baseball strike came and a guy played for the Indians named Kenny Lofton. Now, Kenny... Uh, was an excellent baseball player. A lot of people remember him. He was an all-star. But what they don't know or may not remember, Kenny was a way bigger basketball fan than baseball. Baseball got him to the pros. His love is basketball. Mm -hmm. And Kenny used to come play in open gyms with us, and we used to go do things. So we used to hang out a lot. We would, I mean, we would go to different places. He played Cleveland State. He beat all the runs. And I'm not saying we became the best of friends, but we garnered enough friendship that he allowed me to use his name to put on a Father's Day boat ride um, on the, uh, oh my goodness, now I'm not gonna remember the name of the boat. There's there's this cruise line that yeah, cruises yeah, I remember it too. Everyone yeah, right to so, the same boat. And, yeah, so, and, and so this is a, the first event where we're charging like $100. You know, it's like 2,000 tickets, we're charging 100 bucks. And you got Kenny's name on it and Kim Sellers who, at the time was married to Brad Sellers, another NBA player who I became really good friends with. Through this, um, 
a lot of people would throw events back in the day and put uh, special invited guests. That was the thing. And mm -hmm. of course, none of those people ever showed up. <laughs> nope. The difference between right. my events and those was they're coming. <laughs> right. right. People get there, they see Not Kenny Lawson, they guess. see right. Brad Sellers, they see Carlos Baerga, they see these people like this guy got people here. And then you see mm -hmm. Bone Thugs who walks up, hey man, we want to get, of course you can come, you know, and right. that type of thing became, hey, when Columbus does something, people are actually there. So there's no yep. longer any special invited guests. And that news travels pretty fast. Yeah. Um, there was a guy named Al Black I really looked up to called Black Productions in Cleveland. He used to uh, um, know a lot of people and um, he helped me get Shaquille O'Neal, uh, events with Biggie Smalls, like right when these guys, you know, Shaq was big, but Biggie was just coming up um, and all these different people. But the biggest thing was people were actually there. And mm -hmm. what I realized was if you can put on a product and give them exactly what you say, it, it separates you from everyone. Yeah, and so there was the luck plus a little bit of foresight um, that, that, that made my promotions um, successful. What made, a, what made promotions appealing to you? Because I think sometimes, you know, prom promoters, when you get kind of thrown into that box, every, every style of promoter kind of gets thrown into the same box. But I think there are different types of promoters and people who use promoting for different reasons. Um, one, like you said, it's obviously an opportunity to create, you know, the type of environment that maybe you would want to go to. But I think there are other benefits that people get from promoting that people don't talk about. Talk about a little bit, some of those, if you don't mind. Well, um, I think that people uh, don't realize the equity that you can put on fame. And, yes. and um, there is an equity piece to fame. And if you talk to probably, you guys know this well, you guys know a lot of famous people. You can talk to, I remember seeing an interview with little Kim one day when she was saying, I was flying all around the world and couldn't pay my car note. Mm. I was on private jets, staying in the best hotels in the world, all these things. But she was able to, obviously she became a big, bigger and bigger star, but she was already famous. And that fame has probably carried her to whatever she is to this day. And mm -hmm. so being a promoter exposed me to a certain level of fame, which helped me start do other things. You know, once people see you as successful or see you as popular or see you as someone that is maybe uh, gaining some financial gain or prowess or what may what it may be, um, they want to gravitate to you. And mm -hmm. and I never took that took you know took that for granted. You know, mm -hmm. I kind of use that to parlay into other things. And so yep, there it is. And speaking of that parlay, one of the one of the more interesting things is that you actually started or helped start the and one basketball tour, as you said, that network and building those relationships led you to opportunities. And one of those big opportunities was the N one basketball tour. Anybody who was around in, in the late nineties, early two thousands knew how big that was. Take us into the synthesis of that, how you decided to yeah. start it, how you recognize the market need. Cause I think that's an important part of your story is that, you recognize the need in the marketplace. Um, Absolutely. So I have to give credit to people um, and people will argue this. It, I, I can't take all the credit because there's a guy named Mark Edwards out of Atlanta. And I think Mark is still doing like uh, high level basketball training for pro athletes or high, high profile college. But 
Um, when And One first started, it was literally a mixtape. And just like everyone, they had these trash talk t-shirts that, you know, the guy holding the ball, the muscles, and And One is a trash talk uh, concept in itself. You know, you get hit, you still make the bucket, And One, you kind of, and it was literally a mixtape. And so once again, I mentioned Brad Sellers earlier. So when I saw this mixtape, someone had played basketball my entire life and seen the things that these guys were doing. I'm like, this is insane. Like what they did was, and one had this amazing marketing tool for promoting their apparel, which was let's go to different cities and find the best of whatever it is, a person who dribbles the best. Who is the best shooter? Who can jump so high that it's just mind boggling? Well, they went and filmed these guys doing that and gave them free apparel. There was no tour. And so they filmed hot sauce with the handles and that before Skip Tamalu was in the NBA, you know, Ray Frosten, they're filming him, Half Man, Half Amazing. I talked to all these different people and they put him on a mixtape. And I saw this mixtape and said, as a promoter, I want to do a game. I want to put these guys against some other people and do a celebrity game. And so I called my friend Brad Sellers and I said, hey, Brad, we need to call this your team versus. So it started as just a celebrity game. Well, here's the one thing people and I've told many people know this story. So we did the first game. This is night 2000 at Tri-C Community College at their gym, held 1500 people. Um, we had 1,500 tickets. Uh, this is, I'm being told by police that approximately 15,000 people showed up. Wow. I was put in handcuffs for inciting a riot. Mm. I was inside, it was crazy. Um, I remember LeBron, LeBron um, and uh, Eddie were outside calling me and I had not met LeBron. I couldn't get them in. I couldn't get them in the, in the place. It was just a fascinating thing to see all these people show up. So only about 900 people ended up getting in to the building. There was mm. about 10,000 people outside fighting, doing everything else. They let me go. They did not arrest me because the, the commander said it's an organized event on the inside. I was able to prove to them that I did not oversell the event. These people just came down like any other event thinking mm -hmm. I could buy tickets at the door. They had to close off the exit of the freeway. So as the game finally started, I'm sitting over here in the back of my mind. You talk about an aha moment. I'm like, holy crap. First of all, if I didn't know this many people were coming, this would have been at Gundarina. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, bigger, and I was only charging $10 per ticket. I'm like, can you oh. $40? Right. So, and so that was the start. And so Mark Edwards and I, and so Mark um, is a guy who was a New York street legend at one time. He helped and one find these players. And he also had a kid living with him that he met that was illegally living at 24 hour fitness. His name was hot sauce and hot sauce was living with Mark and he was trying to get him. So me and Mark started doing games all over the country and the world. Everywhere. And it just became this amazing thing that, um, that I'm still proud of to this day. And a lot of the players that you see on N1, they, we discovered them along the way. Um, uh, you know, just, you know, they would come to the games and they'd want to show us, but they're like, oh, great. 
Um, but in the beginning, N1 was not paying any of these players. We were. Um, yeah. They were only offering them apparel deals. And it was about 2000, I want to say three or four, N1 um, wanted to, I guess, kind of control the rights to the players. And they wanted to take the games to huge arenas. You know, when we would come to a city, um, we would go to, if we're in uh, uh, um, Cleveland, Ohio, we would go to Cleveland State. Mm -hmm. They'd want to go to um, uh, Rocket Mortgage. What is it called now? Quicken Loans Arena. Is it Quicken Loans? Okay. Quicken Loans. (laughs) They want to go to Quicken Loans. But we would go to a place that held 8,000 people and packed 9,000 in there. It was ruckus, mayhem. You put 9,000 people in a place that holds 23,000. Yeah. It's, it's not, they, I would say they killed the environment and they tried to turn it into a reality show and all these things. So, it, you know, it kind of fizzled out. But I felt like if done right, they had the opportunity to make it as big as the Globetrotters are still to this day able to sell out arenas. I just think that, they should have kept with that same vision. What do you feel like one of the most important things that you kind of took away from that, that experience was? Lawyers. Mm. You got it. You, Mecca. So, <laughs> in full disclosure, so, you know, M1 and I fought over the rights, if you will, to the tour. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, so what they decided to do was they put all the players on contract and put something in their contract stating they could only do games under this, whatever I think it's called basketball marketing. And they sued me in Philadelphia. And I ended up having to fly back and forth to Philadelphia um, fighting this thing. And, you know, because I didn't have, I didn't have everything I needed uh, paperwork wise, attorney wise. I did for, my printing company was growing time. had, But this thing, I still was looking at it like a promoter and I wasn't treating it enough like a business, even though it was yeah. making a tremendous amount of money. Yeah. And for everyone that thinks that, you know, has this mindset about having attorneys and what they are and all, you know, they can kill that, you know, because it's it's kind of like 911. You know, you can talk bad about the police all you want, but if someone's right. holding the gun to you, you're calling the police to help you yeah. out. And right. and and I'd say for anyone that is starting something or has something of value, you got to protect it. And I didn't yeah. do a good job of protecting uh, something that my I built and uh, Mark Edwards built um, early on. But uh, so I, I and, and also I'll say that um, this wasn't my first experience in the streetball realm. I NBA All-Star Weekend, back to my promoter days, um, and that influence that you have out of town being a proper promoter, I got a call from a guy that ran the Rucker Tournament. Um, um, what's his name? Oh, shoot. I think it was his name. But he passed away. He Earl, ran the Earl Manigault? What's that? Is that Earl Manigault? No, 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 no. Um, I'll think of his name. Yeah. Um, but he um, ran the Rucker Tournament at the time. Um, the Entertainers Basketball League, they called it. And he wanted to do a celebrity game. And he and I did a celebrity game at Cleveland State uh, University, NBA All-Star Weekend in 96. And it was awesome. I mean, we had all the best with Puffy was there, Mace. Um, we had um, um, the locks um, back then. Um, so we, it's uh, funny. You can always tell what era somebody's yeah, from. They, yeah, whether old. they call him Puffy or whether they call him Diddy. 
yeah, yeah. <laughs> I still call it Pimpy too. <laughs> yeah, I'm old. Yeah, I'm old. Right. But so, uh, oh, his name is Greg Marius. Greg Marius is his name. Okay. Greg Marius ran the entire Entertainers Basketball League and the Rucker Park. I think Greg passed away about five, six years ago, something like that. Uh, well-known guy, but you know, he, I got to meet some of the players that became M1 players during that because he brought all these guys from New York. Half man, half amazing, headache. He brought these people to this game in 96. And so I got to know a few of the players then. To this day, headache, headache is one of my favorite people in the world. But, um, but so and one wasn't the first, my first uh, delve into the street ball, what have you, uh, entertainment world. Right. Well, the next the next phase is an interesting one because that's actually how our paths cross. Um, you had been doing the promotion. You took a trip to Vegas, and you saw something in Vegas that triggered a thought in your head. Yeah. Tell us, tell us, take us into that and the birth of hot cards. Yeah. So, you know, in Vegas, uh, you walk around and there's these people handing out these cards of these um, nice young ladies that people would like you to come visit late at night. And they do dances, uh, ballet dances late in the evening. So. <laughs> but on these, but, but printing, so printing was expensive, full color printing. So if you, everybody back then went to Kinko's on whatever the paper of the month was, and you print out your flyers and you cut them yourself. And, but if you wanted real full color printing on glossy cards, for 5,000, I think I had a quote one time of like $2,500 for mm. 5,000 postcards, full color. Well, I'm looking at this flyer and it's full color, but I'm in Vegas. So I'm like, you know, one of these big casinos or whatever places can afford this. But on the back of the flyer, it has this little tag that says design and printed by the bomb factory spelled D A bomb. I'm like, <laughs> I don't think this is a Fortune 500 company. The <laughs> bomb factory. I'm like, I don't. This doesn't sound like a printing company. <laughs> so I'm like, and so I got. I kept the flyer. I went home and I called, and um, I called the guy, and it's it's literally just a young kid in college, and I'm like, well, how did you afford? He's like, well, I I gang run print at this printer. He's out of California. He's like, I gang printed at this printer, and he explained to me what gang run printing is. And what is it? He said, Well, I put that flyer on a huge sheet, like this, you know, a huge sheet with someone else's business card, someone else's flyer, and then we cut them all out. The most expensive part of the printing is the setup, the initial setup, the ink, the paper, the plates to start the job. Once the job is rolling, the paper is the most, the cheapest part. But to print five thousand flyers, you got to waste about. Uh, I'd say about 500 sheets of paper to get the colors right. Um, the plates cost a lot of money. Um, and then the ink and the setup and all those things, having someone convert them into plates, that's the biggest cost. So putting all these flyers on one huge sheet. Now, if there's 20 people on the sheet, they're all sharing that cost. And that's how I was born. And so my mm. idea was I'm bringing this to this area because evidently, it's in California now. And so that's what I did. I went to all these different printers with this idea. And, you know, you often hear people talk about um, people making fun of their idea. Like, I literally had people laugh at me. Like, this is not how printing goes. 
this is not how printing is done. And I couldn't. And what ended up happening is I, I stumbled. And this goes back to that work ethic method, Mecca. I wasn't giving up. I'm going door to door to printing companies. And I stumbled upon a place on Lakewood Avenue in Lakewood, Ohio, called Veta and Sons Printing. And they had a full color printing press that had a tarp over it. So and the reason it had a tarp because they said they just didn't have enough full color business. And so I proposed this idea and that I would do this. So they said, yep, well, then we'll lease you our press every Tuesday. Here's the cost. We're going to charge you for this sheet. It doesn't matter if you have one postcard on it or a million, we're going to charge you for the whole sheet. So when I started off, I'm just losing money. I got um, rump shaker doing strip shows and I got uh, 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 Peabody's nightclub. The, this one stripper guy and Peabody's nightclub were my two clients. And I just kept doing it and myself, of course. And so that boat ride I talked to you about with Kenny Lofton was probably the first flyer in Cleveland that was full color. And this was four years into the boat ride realize you know so this is some years in we've been doing the same and here all of a sudden it's beautiful and full color and then it just it, things just started evolving so fast the flyer itself made people just feel like anything i did was going to be upscale and that was the start and i focused on nightclubs and then i realized this every single company in the world especially in cleveland at the time uses printing. Every single company wanted it full color. And so what I was able to do is I still have these quotes on this book that I kept. The cheapest quote that I got for 5,000 half page flyers was $2,500 and some change. I was able to reduce that cost, same quality from $2,500 to about $400. Mm. And that's how Hot Cards was born. And, and obviously continue growing, but the sales aspect of it and, and those things were uh, me grinding and, and trying to build the business and um, um, deciding that hot cards, I will put all my prices online up front, up front. Sorry, I'm going to spell on you guys. And that was not normal for printing companies either to show you, hey, if you're going to buy 5,000 postcards or 5,000 business cards, here's your price beforehand. People yeah. like to quote you based on your business. If you're calling from right. the price might have been 800. If you're calling from Joe's Lawn Care, the price might have been 400. Right. So everything upfront pricing. And so and, then, and eventually you ended up ended up selling that business. Obviously it was very successful. We used it for different things that we were doing. Uh, and how, how did you come to that decision? And was it something that was hard for you considering how much work and effort you talked about the hard work you put into it, uh, considering that? Yeah, it was tremendously hard. Um, uh, ironically, the the people who sold me my printing presses, um, there's a guy, his name's John Gad, and he uh, was someone that was always fascinated because he'd been working with printing companies so long to what I was doing. Um, there's, a, there's a number of anomalies here. One, you just don't see new printing companies popping up on the corner, period. Mm -hmm. Now, add the fact that, I don't know if you guys know, some African-Americans, so African-American guy, <laughs> open up a printing company, something else that doesn't happen. And then um, actually expanding the business out to other markets. So as he's selling me these printing presses, he's always been fascinated, like this was the move. And then we saw other, but he took that and helped other printing companies kind of 
moved to what I was doing. Here comes the evolution of a company called Jack Prince. Uh, big up to those guys. Those guys, like they, those guys were just the greatest of competition to me because they came along and made me want to work harder because it was just me. I was dominating. And, and John Gadd helped other printing companies say, hey, look what this guy is able to do. You can do this too. You get a press and gang run and all this. And I think there was about three or four companies like ours that ended up in Cleveland. Well, that same guy, John Gadd, as fascinated as he was, and maybe he felt guilty, um, had come back um, probably around 2009 or 10 asking about um, buying my company. And, and he had an investment group that was based out of Chagrin Falls, Ohio. And I said, no, um, I said, no. And, you know, I, at the time I was trying to figure out where I could move in life. I lived in Ohio my entire life. I wanted to be somewhere. It did not snow. That was a goal. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and as the business grew, I, I realized I no longer was making, I wasn't working anymore. I was working, but I was only making decisions. I had a production manager, I have a marketing manager, I have a graphic design manager, we have a team manager, we have all these people, customer service. All I did was sit in meetings and I said, I can do this from anywhere in the United States. And so I moved to Houston and, and um, I got a divorce or I was getting divorced. And that was really the time when I thought it made sense because um, I could get her a big lump sum of money. I get myself a big lump sum of money and we all walk away and figure out what I want to do after that. And that was, that was what really drove is moving somewhere different and hoping, you know, I could get a big chunk, chunk of money at one time. And that would allow me to one, just kind of not make any decisions, just enjoy life, you know, ride my bike, clear my head and um, use that money to live on until I could figure out something that I was going to be passionate about again later. I wanted to, I want to circle back to something you said in your answer there. And one of the things that I've, I've taken from you is a lot of people say the customer comes first, right? And for you, it's always been your employees. I remember when I would come in there, your, your brother was there, your wife was there. And it's always been important to you to create opportunities for other people, right? And also not just give them opportunities, but make them happy to work there because I was one of your most annoying customers because I would come in 16 hours before and you guys say, well, you need a 48 hour window. And I would just talk my way into it. <laughs> Somehow you guys would get it done and someone would get it done without getting upset at me or frustrated with me. And that says a lot about the training of your employees. Where did you figure, when did you figure that part of it out? Which was, you know what? without my employees, this business isn't going to operate well and I need to make them happy, not just financially, but also happy to come into work for me. Yeah, that's, to me, it's huge. And I think it's a mistake that many, many people make in business. Your employees are number one. I always used to give this example. If the richest guy in the world walked into my printing company and there was no one there to help him, he would just walk to the next company. And I don't care what their customer service is like. If they're there, he'll do business with them. That's it. The only requirement that he was looking for are people at that point because he already knows what he wants and there's lots of companies. So for me, I realized early, there's a few things. I'm owning a printing company. The workforce from a printing company 
the demographic of that is going to be normally a high school white male who went to a vocational school that had print shop is as a class. And that print shop, they took that because these guys were thinking, I'm not going to college. Printing is something that will give me a lifelong skill. And at the time, running a printing press was an art, is an art form. Um, to this day, I wouldn't know how to turn on a press. It's the size of a semi-truck. I think most people think printing, think copiers. You know, my printing machines are the size of semi-trucks. There's lots of buttons and things, and I literally, not exaggerating, could not turn the machine on to this day. If uh, someone said, how do you turn it on? I don't know. <laughs> I do not. It's an honest to truth. I have no idea how many buttons to hit so that everything's going to work. You got to turn on the feeder. You got to make sure this is up to temp, that, turn on left, ultraviolet. I don't know how to do it. So anyway, the what I realized is I'm going out trying to recruit people to come work for a startup printing company. And, and if we want to be really honest with ourselves, most of these people, first time they're working with African-Americans, definitely the worst first time they're ever working for an African-American. Mm -hmm. This is a decision now someone has to make. Mm -hmm. I can tell you 100%, I had people that were racist that worked for me. Mm -hmm. I know this because we had very, very in-depth conversations from time to time. And, and these were times when people would kind of give me that Columbus, um, I'm happy to proud to be working for you. And then they want to tell me about their past. You know what I mean? And so I realized my customers for me were all my employees. They are the ones that deliver everything, every product, every service. And, and that happened as I was growing because in the beginning, I was customer service. Someone called me. Hey, this is John. How may I help you? <laughs> right. Let me see if you still available. You know, you know, that's the things I'm doing. But I knew everything that was said to every single person in the beginning. Well, as you start getting employees, you start realizing it's a job for them. Yeah. And they don't have the same passion and conviction to the customers you do. So the only way to even get it close to try and bridge that delta a little bit is to make them feel like they're the most important people to the organization. And you have to do that every single day. And I learned that training them about diversity, customer service, understanding employee engagement and behavioral economics, which is something I got fascinated on uh, in early, is was the way if you, to help people run through a brick wall for you. You know, that's it. If you can really focus and make them believe that they're the most important person they will do for you what you want them to do for Viswan, which is, hey, I know he's coming in here last minute, but man, if we can do it, why wouldn't we? Yeah. But can we also do it smile with a smile on our face? Yes, exactly. So that, those are the things. So So when you ultimately when you ultimately left and went to and went to Houston, and like you said, you kind of just felt like you needed to clear your head, you know, figure out what was next. What what was that process like for you initially? And then what did you do? What did you eventually jump into next? So initially, um, when I came here, the, the talk of the start of the sale of, of hot cards was happening. Um, it took a while. It took about two years for the sale to finalize and get approved and everything. But um, I literally wanted, I, I didn't have a plan. There was some talk about me opening a production facility here um, because shipping from Cleveland in Philadelphia, where we had production, um, all the way to the West Coast, 
um, it started changing our pricing a little bit and shipping from Houston would have helped out in that. And this is a big hub going either direction. And after the talks got big, I mean, I literally had, my only idea was I wanted to open uh, some restaurants. And mm-hmm. what I realized was to a lot of people that own restaurants, I realized I didn't want to own a single business that had any inventory. Mm-hmm. I do not want to store inventory. I dealt with that in the paper world. Um, um, you know, we spent a million and a half dollars a year on paper alone. We spent half a million dollars on ink and had to store it, had to store different stocks, had to have all these different things. Had to, and I don't I didn't want to do that anymore. I don't want to store mm-hmm. anything. Now, those weren't perishable items, but in the food industry it's perishable. You run on smaller margins. And so, Mecca, my my whole goal was to find a business or businesses that allowed me to not have a product to sell. Um, I was attracted by like cleaning companies and things like that. But at this point in my life, I wasn't interested in a startup cleaning company where I have one home, you know, it needed to be a little bit bigger. And, and so I, I started doing a little bit of consulting, um, around some things and found this company BI worldwide that was focused around something I was already doing, which was behavior economics. And if you guys want to lose, you can't sleep at night one day, give me a call. I can explain to you what behavioral economics is. If you can't get to sleep, put you to sleep real quick. But the short answer is behavioral economics is um, using behavior to drive anyone to do anything. And I'll give you one example that a lot of people may remember. There was this commercial um, for Pace Salsa where these guys are sitting around a campfire and they're like, their salsa is made in New York City. You guys remember that commercial? Yeah. Like, New, York City. I remember. New York City? New York City. Like, <laughs> <laughs> They didn't say anything to fresher. Oh, I'm still here. Well, they didn't talk about any ingredients whatsoever. All they said is the competitors is in New York City and ours yeah. is in San Diego, Texas. San Antonio. So the behavioral side of that is San Antonio is in Texas, closer to Mexico, lots of yeah. Tex-Mex, has to be better. Yeah. And Pace became the number one selling sauce in America. That is how you use behavior or one way to use behavior to drive emotion, emotion I'm sorry, to drive a behavior. So yeah. you're digging into someone's emotion, the emotions there, and it drives behavior. And that works with customers, it works with your employees, keeping them highly engaged. And that was something I got fascinated with and started doing uh, consulting around that. Mm. Nice, and so that transitioned, you you started working and you started seeing how big companies in Texas, everything's bigger in Texas, right? You saw how big corporations in Texas operated. and you started to see the mechanics of how that company worked. And then your network from hot cards led you to your current opportunity where you kind of merged what you were doing as a consultant with the concept of FUDA. Take us into what FUDA was, how the opportunity presented itself to you and why it appealed to you. Yeah, so, you know, remember me thinking, what's the next business move? Um, and 
you know, I was, I stumbled across this because John, yeah, the same person that came back and bought my printing company, um, I had knew somebody that was with Groupon. It was like this, you know, it, it was one of those things like if I, if I were to put this all in one circle, it's like, come on, no one would believe that all this is by happenstance and like that I didn't know any of these people prior, but yeah. a conversation with him led me to FUDA. And I'll explain the concept first, and then I'll explain how I got involved. What FUDA is, is um, FUDA, take, you take a big office building, huge office building, and those people have, if there's no cafeteria in that building, those people have to make a decision at lunch. You got 3,000 people in the building that um, either are going down to the little deli that's somewhere close, they're going to the convenience shop, they're ordering DoorDash, Uber Eats, or they're getting in their car, they're leaving or walking somewhere. Those are their options. And so what FUDA does is we'll take a kiosk, kind of like you'd see in a mall, like the center of a mall, we'll take a kiosk, we'll put it in the lobby of this office building. You put it in our lobby of this office building, and then in that space, every single day, we bring you a brand new restaurant. So today, it could be Peli Peli. Tomorrow, it's California Pizza Kitchen. The next day, it's Chick-fil-A. The next day, it's Halal Guys. Mm -hmm. Every day, you get a brand new restaurant. And so you never get tired of the variety. So now you have 3,000 people in the building that can ride the elevator escalator down, grab hot, fresh food, go back to their cubicle, watch Game of Thrones and have their full hour. It's a genius um, idea. An app where they get yeah. to follow along to see who's coming for the next few weeks. So you say, oh, oh, I've been wanting to try Killen's barbecue. I'm, I'm, and oh, on this day, I don't like this. So I'm gonna bring my lunch. And that day I'm going to lunch with my friend. So it becomes a service that is unlike any other because of the rotating restaurants. And these are literally the actual restaurants serving their food by their employees. So me as the food, well, I don't serve any food. I just created, right. <laughs> so we're a lot like Uber. So Uber had this amazing way to marry people who want a ride with people willing to offer a ride, right? So, and they made it really cool and engaging. And to everyone that tells me it's not cool and engaging, I'll say, just think like this for a second. You order the app, then you see the guy and you're like, oh my God, why'd he go down Smith Street? He's gonna get caught at that light. You get in the car, you're like, hey, next time, don't cut down there, you're engaged. Now you get out the car, you're rating him. That's engaging. So that is way better than being upset from trying to hail a cab. And so we found a way to make getting lunch engaging. Mm -hmm. And that is the company. Now, once again, going back to my other, there's no product to sell other than the services. I don't cook any food. I don't serve any food. All I have to do is build out a team. And so here was the difference between FUDA and all the other opportunities I had in the past. So FUDA, I have an opportunity to have equity in a startup company and run an entire market. And I know you said there's marketing director of Mech, it's Mark Kitt. <laughs> marketing director. So market director, market. yeah. I own the market and everybody reports into me operations, sales, what have you. And so, but I also had to build it from scratch. Um, it was just me and my son. So it was me and my son, Will, who took a year off of college to help me get this thing off the ground. And mm. our first pop-up was Williams Tower. And going up to pre-COVID, we had about 100 buildings and expanded to three cafeterias. And, and when I s tell people that about these pop-ups, they don't always see 
the big vision and I'll explain, you guys will get it very fast. So that one pop-up at Williams Tower um, does about $1,500, $2,000 a day. They serve about 200 customers. There's 4,000 people in the building. So we're not catching everyone, but we're serving about 200 people. It's a couple thousand dollars a day times five days a week. So that's 10 grand a week from this pop-up times a month. That's 40 grand a month times a year. We're talking about that little silly pop-up now makes a half a million dollars a year. We had a hundred of them. And so mm. that's, that's the vision of food and how big this opportunity is. And once we built out a team, then we started going after full cafeterias and places like Philip 66, Weatherford, Dow Chemical, Schlumberger, companies that have these huge cafeterias that we're going to do the same thing we did in the pop-up, which is what? You got six food stations. We're going to have two regulars, what we call residents. So we're going to bring in free birds to run your uh, Tex-Mex station. We're going to bring in Salada to run your salad bar. And then we're going to rotate five different restaurants every single day. This makes people more excited about going down to their cafeteria. Now it doesn't seem like cafeteria food. And I think the biggest trick that we played on the industry, unlike some of the other competitors, the exact same price you pay at any of their restaurants is what you pay at our pop-up. We don't allow a single penny markup at all. Wow. And so you've all ordered DoorDash and it said $12 yeah. when you put it in the cart, how it became 26 <laughs> when you checked out, you know, yeah. <laughs> no idea. But $12 is $12 for the food to pop up or in the cafeteria. So let me make a quick point real quick before you go into sure. something else is that one of the reasons why I think this is so genius is because I remember when I, you know, I worked at a big law firm in New York City and one of those buildings that had 50 floors and all that type of thing. And one of the things that I remember hearing, and I, I don't even know if I was supposed to hear this, I think I overheard it, was from the executives that they loved the idea of having a cafeteria in the building mm -hmm. because keeping people in the building yep. made people actually work more and work yep. longer. And when they had to go out and figure things out, um, to the point where one firm called Wachtell, which was the number one uh, firm in the world, they used to have a food station that would go to people's door to door to people's offices. Yeah. So literally they wouldn't leave. Every single service they would bring to their door. So on top of the fact that you're servicing the, the actual employees in the building, you're also serving the needs of the employer. So I just think it's a genius idea. I just wanted to point that out real quick. Mecca, you are 1000% correct. And I'll take it one step further than that. Um, we've seen studies by companies. So there's a difference between multi-tenant building and companies. So companies have found that if they give their employees five bucks to eat at that said cafeteria. So you're like, you're gonna pay me to eat? Well, if you're in a lawyer at a big law firm in New York, you're making 150, 200K minimum anyway. Mm -hmm. $5 to them for your lunch is nothing. However, however, they're paying you, let's call it $300 an hour. So that five bucks that keeps you going to that cafeteria is nothing compared to the pro uh, productivity gain from you not taking a two and a half hour lunch by leaving the building, going sitting. Absolutely. The clock doesn't start till your food gets there. Right, <laughs> right, right. And, Absolutely. And the, and the other part of this is you realize too that your employees, when you work at any company, I used to see this when I worked, everybody was planning their schedule around what they were going to eat for lunch. Yep. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, and so therefore that's the other part of it too. The employees now they don't have to make those plans, right? They're not spending time doing that. I'm just going to go downstairs to the cafeteria and I know I have a multi 
multitude of options that I can pick from. And at any time, if I have a 15 minute break, I can go downstairs and get something. And I think the thing that you took it from, I think in Houston specifically, is you saw not just having like the cafe, but actually building out the kitchen and the cafeteria and kind of putting that cost on the corporation versus you taking on that cost. Take us into how you kind of sold that concept to these corporations. Absolutely. So um, there's, so let me take a step back. So most of the opportunities we've been in right now, um, they're already, that already existed. So what we're doing is coming in saying, you have a legacy provider that's there and you guys know who, you know, I don't want to say their names, but um, they're in hospitals. They're anywhere. There's a cafeteria's legacy yeah. provider. And there's a chef, John, that is making food every day. On Monday, he's making brisket. On Tuesday, he's making Taco Tuesday. But there's the chef that's running this all these stations. And what we do is come in and say, we'll take over your whole operation. But instead of having Chef John cook tacos on Tuesday, we're going to bring in Torchy's Taco. And we believe that everyone thinks Torchy's is better than Chef John. So it's going to make people more engaged and use the service. Now, we do have some buildings where we have had people actually build out spaces right now, the Swant, and they are not open yet. They're done, but not open because of COVID. So we've had some people build out spaces specifically for FUDA, and that's the thing that we've been able to do is we'll tell someone, we don't need you to build out a huge kitchen. So we're not telling them to build out a kitchen we're telling them build out a cafeteria space minus that huge cost of the kitchen, the 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 um, the trap, the grease traps, the expensive machinery. This is millions of dollars of investment to create a back end kitchen for these cafeterias. And Viswant, what we do do is we'll go in and tell them we don't need all that because we're bringing in restaurants that have prepared most of this stuff at their locations. They're yeah. bringing it in. We need the best warmers in the world, the best places to do these type of things, but we don't necessarily need you to have that expensive equipment all the time unless we're taking it over from someone that already had it. But that's a tremendous- One, one more question, one more question on, oh, sorry. One more question on FUDA before we, we, we move to something fun and get you out of here. Just if people wanted to actually use this, this service, how would they how would they go about getting in contact with you guys? What's the process like? Yeah, so you know, if, if you're in one of our markets, we're in 26 markets. We're in Columbus. Um, um, opened up in Columbus, I want to say right at the beginning of this year. And I know it's growing, obviously. I, I keep saying pre-COVID because we know a lot of people are working from home now. Um, yeah. currently we went from a hundred buildings open. Right now we have about 12 buildings and, and two cafeterias open. Um, but we know all that'll change when they come back. But Basically, anybody can download the FUDA app and just search where you're at. It'll tell you wherever there's a FUDA pop-up. Most people that have a FUDA pop-up in their building um, also go to other buildings for work and other things like that. Anywhere there's a FUDA pop-up, you can use your app. Um, I want to say there was probably about 25, 30 uh, buildings with the FUDA pop-up in yeah. Columbus and growing. Um, but it's merely downloading app. But normally they find out about us by seeing us in their building yeah and um and you know we don't do any advertising because we're strictly for the buildings that we're in we don't do one-off deliveries like other companies and things like that we want you to ride the elevator escalator down get your food go back to your desk or wherever you're going to go and enjoy your meal and then do you guys i guess i'm just this is i'm just curious now too do you guys actually brand fuda 
on the on the kiosk, or is it just, or is it just a company uh, that's providing? Yeah, it's all Fuda. Yep, our food yeah. halls are brand branded Fuda. Our our pop ups are branded Fuda. Yeah, everything is. I love it. So people understand the brand. And yeah. you know that the different restaurants going to come in, in there each day. They have a digital menu board that'll show the restaurant that's there that day. But we've we've done a good job of making sure that we're branding everything Fuda as it continues to grow. Yeah, yeah this app is, is this is that app is 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 the critical piece of of everything. It seems like yeah, you know, and this is like brilliant, the, man. This, you know, this, this yeah, this is this is brilliant. Honestly, you you're a brilliant guy and. This this idea is brilliant. We wish, wish you a ton of success with it. And we want to get to something fun real quick before we get you out of here. Um, give us your top five musicians of all time. Boy, I was thinking about this here. So <laughs> um, Michael Jackson has to be mm. on my list. I'm, you know, I I grew up with, you know, I bought the red jacket, had the high <laughs> for Halloween, probably more than one year. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> so Michael... Um, I would, I would put Jay-Z, my favorite rapper is Jay-Z, mm -hmm. you know, this, um, to me it's Jay-Z, like when everyone makes a f top five list, it's Jay-Z, then everyone else, you know, right. and this might surprise people, but I, I have to put Drake and, and I know people hate that I say this because I I'm an old school guy, but I feel like if you, this dude makes more music than I not like, but love. Mm -hmm. Than probably all the people I named before, yeah, Michael Jackson and Jay Z, mm -hmm. and it seems like he can't miss. And and I I'm kind of one of those people that like the 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 whole I didn't come from drug dealer to this. You, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. He he came a different route and has still garnered disrespect. Um, this um, I'm a big uh, '80s all '80s music fan, but probably. I, uh, Steve Perry Journey, like mm. to me, the best single song ever made. Single song is Don't Stop Believing. I mm. feel like there's not a single person, no matter what their favorite music genre is, that would say, I don't like that song. Mm. You get what I mean? Yeah. May not be the, it's, I think it's the best song by default because no one in the world will say, Oh, I don't like Don't Stop Believing. Yeah. Well, a lot of people that will tell me they don't like a number of my favorite Jay Z songs. Right, right. Um, and then hold on, I need one more. Um, oh boy, I probably have to go with Luther Vandross. Go a little old. Okay, owner. Luther, yeah. all those babies. What's that? <laughs> Said helped you make all those babies. Absolutely. <laughs> no question. No question. Dang it, Luther. <laughs> He's a blessing and a curse. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this one we we debate and we talk sports a lot. So your your top five athletes. I, I have a sense of a couple of them. Yeah. But I uh, want to hear the rest. Well, Michael Jordan is, uh, I feel like Michael Jordan changed all of our lives in some way, form, or fashion or another. Um, it's just, you know, this guy, you know, it's it's crazy. Um, so it's, but I think our debates are more about eras, you know. So Michael yeah. Jordan is always going to be one of my favorite athletes. Um, LeBron is, is one of my favorite athletes. I respect some of the things he's done. I think... Um, uh, probably the three of us here probably dig a little deeper in the weeds and understand the people around him and understand sports in general. And I feel like um, it doesn't matter if you know of anything good or bad about LeBron. He's been able to stay above board in terms of the media. His, he has lived up to all the hype on the court. And 
by any standards that's known to the public, he's one of the most upstanding uh, uh, citizens that we have in our United States. And so I'm impressed by his accomplishments for someone that's been in the limelight since he was basically in the eighth grade. Um, Lance Armstrong um, is, is, to me, someone that I feel continues to change my life to this day because I don't play basketball anymore. I don't things, but I just finished watching the Tour de France this weekend. Um, I took up cycling about 2008 after seeing, 2007 after seeing his story and coming back from Tokyo where everybody seemed to be on a bike. Um, and, you know, I understand the controversy surrounding him. I also understand the industry like we had in sports when, when uh, Jose Canseco said, hey, everybody's doing dope, they kicked him out. What we find out? Well, everybody was doing, <laughs> he, was, mm -hmm. he was correct. And that was, you know, and I'm not giving Lance a pass, but I'm saying that was cycling back then. And I, I give people a little, uh, a, a, a fact that people probably don't know, many people don't know. So Lance Armstrong won seven straight Tour de France's. They vacated his victories because he admitted to doping. Um, but do you know that there are no victors of those seven races because the person who got second place, the person who got third place, and the person who got fourth place all were found doping. Yeah. Those seven <laughs> years are 100% vacant. There's no, wow. they didn't give it to the second place. And I think that to me, if people understood that, I don't think they would think so badly about Lance. Lance was doing what he had to do to compete not he didn't look at it as cheating in any way so um but i think cycling and athletes cycling athletes are some of the best in the world uh isaiah thomas i'm a I, he was my favorite uh guard growing up uh and i always just really looked up to isaiah thomas and and last i'll go with walter payton mm -hmm. um i feel bad with walter payton for a couple reasons um if anybody who wants to take a look at and you know me this might be me and my psychological mindset but Walter Payton won a Super Bowl. And if you look at him after he won that Super Bowl, and I'm sure you could. He is the only person that walks off the field that's not high-fiving. He's not smiling. He doesn't seem that happy. And I guarantee it was because he was like, I worked my ass off all these years. And they handed the ball to Refrigerator Perry to score a touchdown. <laughs> I like Marshawn Lynch. Most, the biggest level of disrespect any athletes ever had. And he literally just walked off and disgusted. And then after his career was over, I don't, I, I still don't feel like he got what he deserved. Um, he was gone too soon. So uh, I think that he's won for that's sure. A, that's a, that's a great list, man. And look, this has been, this has been amazing. Well, obviously we could talk to you all day. We do talk to you all day. Um, <laughs> and, and we're probably going to, you know, keep talking to you to keep learning from you. Cause I feel like, one of the things that's amazing about you is, first of all, you work hard, but like you said, you don't, you never stop learning as well. And also, I think you're also very forthright with that information and giving back um, and teaching people what you've learned. And I think that's at the end of the day, when you look back at your legacy, that's going to be a very big part of your legacy. Probably the thing that you probably care about the most is how many people you brought up behind you and mentored as, uh, as, as you were learning. So we really, really appreciate you. And thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Becca, I want to add to that. I apologize that you're signing off, but what you just said means a lot. I want to, and this is a humble brag, but it's not for me. And I, I want to say it on this podcast. So it lives forever for my son is I got an award from FUDA for building up the market um, um, from a $0 startup to a $15 million market in just two years. 
And amazing. I couldn't have did that without my son. And so they sent me this amazing award, which mm. I'm going to mail to my son, who's now back in Ohio with you guys. I love and, it. Uh, I want to thank him. This is for him. And it goes to what you said, Mecca, um, that legacy that I hope he continues on uh, in doing things and knowing that he can accomplish whatever through entrepreneurship or whatever he wants to do. But uh, William, this award is for you. I appreciate what you did to help me get this uh, market going. Thank That's you. big, man. That's big. Congrats. Congrats to you and congrats to him. Love the Pilot Boys podcast? Support us on Patreon. Supporters can pledge as little as $1. We have some cool perks on there. Check out www.patreon.com forward slash Pilot Boys podcast. Show us some love today. You're listening to the Pilot Boys podcast. We are here with a special guest, Zach Smith of Menace to Sports. Zach, how you doing? Thanks for joining I'm us. I'm great, man. How you guys been? Good, good, man. Hey, yeah. man, I'm just glad we're back on the show together. That means football <laughs> might happen, right? <laughs> Golly. Exactly. It's like football is happening, right? Yeah. yeah. At least hey, I'm going to tell you what. I'm not holding my breath. Until they kick yeah. off, I'm not counting it. Well, you know, it's been crazy. It's been the, the off season uh, has, has been crazy because, I mean, obviously we saw all the cancellations from hockey to NBA yeah. and baseball being pushed back and everybody trying to find their way back. Obviously, moving into the fall season and into football and college football. And then the Big Ten and the Pac-12 kind of making their early decision, which, in my opinion, I think they did that assuming that everybody else was going to cancel and maybe they wanted to be first. Um, right. And that backfired. Uh, what, what was your thought? Let's just jump right into that. What was your thought when you first heard the Big Ten was canceling their season? I just thought it was premature. Post, po postponing. I yeah, postponement. If yeah. It, that's a, a catchy <laughs> word, right? right. Postponement. Like yeah. Postponing it to January would have been – <laughs> not a cancellation right right, right. um you know it, it, i just thought it was so premature mm -hmm. it was like why why right now like you mm -hmm. could literally cancel the season the day before the first game and then you're yeah. you're good like let's right. just wait and see i i just felt like like you said i think they were trying to be trailblazers trendsetters trying to do you know and i, I think every everyone has conspiracies on why they did it who's to fault who's the was the issue i think it was just really poor leadership from the presidents and kevin warren on pulling the trigger prematurely now they created this yeah. train wreck that they have of trying to reinstate the season and i think they could have done what other conferences didn't just wait just wait yeah. obviously you know hindsight's 2020 i get it like there's new testing available now it's it's more feasible but they could have waited to see right mm -hmm. like this is an ever-evolving time i think yeah. they just pulled the trigger way too soon trying to be like the trendsetter that that did it first yeah, yeah I, think, I, think, I think there's I think, a, a little bit of a lack of awareness of Football is just as big in Big Ten country as it is down in the SEC. It is religion for people to to cancel? I don't think they fully understood the type of reaction that that was going yeah. to generate, and I think overall just showed a lack of awareness. Yeah, I definitely think it did. And you know what else? That you can't tell me it's coincidental that there was three conferences that had players unite from multiple schools and come come out and basically say that we will not allow a waiver, have all these lists of demands, and those three conferences canceled. <laughs> and the SEC yeah. and ACC, no players unified. And it was like, yeah, we're playing. We're good. We're amateurs. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing, too, I think is also, to, to V's point about the uh, the blowback, I don't think they expected the blowback because they didn't really get that. They still haven't really gotten that from the Pac-12 schools and, no, and they fans because it's not, yeah. you know, I mean, people love football. They got good weather. The they, 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 yeah. they <laughs> it's not the same. Um, but also, you know, just the economic impact. As part of this is, is that, too, is, you know, people who have small businesses or local businesses or, you know, who do 80 or 90 percent of their business during fall season. It's like, you no, know, it's unacceptable to us, not beyond just being a fan, which you have that, too, obviously. 
but just in terms of how it impacts people locally. Um, but the other thing I was hearing too, and who knows how true this is, is that it, there were also fights behind the scenes. Obviously the liability discussion was one of them, but it was also about how is the money gonna get split? Some people wanted yeah. to play, some people didn't. There's right. all like people were saying, well, shit, if I'm if we're playing and you're not, then why are you getting an equal cut than us? You know, it's Absolutely. all these different disputes happening behind the scenes, which I still think they led to a, led them to make an, a premature decision. But there's probably a lot that we don't know that we probably are, are never going to hear. Um, oh, for sure. But now that they've changed the position, I guess I wanted your perspective on why do you think that happened? I mean, I guess it relates to some of what we're talking about. But is there anything else there that you that maybe we've missed? I mean, I think you're already seeing it. I mean, with Michigan's president ha- having a vote of no confidence and getting getting kind of kicked out of Michigan, I think they realized that the blowback was going to be, I mean, career ending for a mm-hmm. lot of presidents, maybe Kevin Warren. And don't get me wrong, I think that the the developments and testing and stuff like that helped them either help them make the right choice or, or make the switch or it gave them an excuse, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was one of the two and we'll never know which one it was, but I think that it really got down to the point where they're like, holy cow, these attorneys, Tom Mars, they started going after the Freedoms of Information Act. And I think they knew there's some things in our emails that it's not going to be very good if it comes out. Yeah. And I think it was just a, a self-preservation decision. Yeah. It was like, you know what? Other conferences are playing. We got to make this happen. Yeah. Yeah. And and now let's, you know, we, we've talked ad nauseum, I think, on social media and everywhere about the initial decision. And obviously now, we actually have football and we have a schedule. What do you think the impact of a shortened season is going to have on teams, players, and ultimately the Big Ten's role in the national landscape of college football? I mean, I think I think the good thing is uh, Gene Smith started the PR spin, right? He in his in his press conference right after they announced the schedule, he was talking about how you know this year's an unprecedented year and how. It's really going to be about how a team looks, not necessarily how many wins they have. He's already starting to push it. Yeah, he's starting to push it. It's like, like (laughs) fight on, Gene. (laughs) And and so I think that's ultimately, you know, what it is. If Ohio State's undefeated, nine and zero, or whatever the heck it's going to be, they're going to make the playoffs. Mm. It's the the issue is going to be when someone loses a game, and it's like, all right, they're eight and one. This other team's ten and one. I mean, that's somewhat significant Mm -hmm. so you know how it is it's going to be a ploy for espn and then the the sec bias to try to get a second team and it is and we and all we did in the midwest is gave them a great like rocket launcher of ammunition that's all we did i I have another question too about kind of like the shortened season and and see in the nfl i don't know if you've been if you i'm sure you have because you play fantasy there have been the injuries have been insane i mean it's just like in like big injuries and big name players and ACLs and like out for the season type stuff. And it, it, I mean, obviously I think there's a, it relates to not having preseason and not training necessarily the way they normally do. College football is a little different though, because they don't have all those preseason games and all that type of stuff. Literally yeah. it's like three, four weeks of camp and then you play your first game. Yeah, for sure. Do you, do you see kind of the same thing happening here or is there, <sighs> there, is there something I'm missing about that with the, with the, with the pros? No, that, I mean, I think the, the thing that, I, I think you're right. You're spot on with with what happened with NFL athletes. I mean, I remember I was at a I'm in Powell, Ohio, at the local park where my son plays travel baseball, and every Wednesday out there is Chase Young, Jalen Holmes, like every NFL D lineman from Ohio State in the last five years out there training with Larry Johnson, and it's like mm. these kids were used to the mini camps and they had a structured plan of going to these Exos training facilities and all these things in the off season because it. it 
it takes a year round effort to get your body ready to play football. Yeah. And so you took away six months. And I mean, not that what Larry and the guys were doing in the park wasn't great. It was excellent. Mm -hmm. What it wasn't normal training. Right. And so right. they roll into a season with a shortened preseason, no, no uh, preseason games that mm -hmm. whole summer and, and spring, I guess, part of the sea, the, the years taken away. So it, their bodies weren't ready for it. And mm. I think that's going to hurt college kids, but they also are, are structured a little different, you know? And if, if they did their due diligence in their self workouts or whatever quarantine workouts, I think there's a chance that we remain relatively healthy, but yeah. it's definitely a concern. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, you're talking about big names, like say Quan Barkley, Christian McCaffrey, Cortland Sutton. I mean, these are big, big names, you know, everyone's first round in fantasy got destroyed. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's health Health is wealth, right? And, you know, another interesting thing about college football, right? In the NFL, you have a depth chart that's completely full of professionals, right? Guys who played three years in college and are ready to go. In college, it's unique because you also have on your depth chart freshmen who've never played yeah. college-level football before. And it seems like there is a potential of a lot of next man up. There are some players opting out, oh, yeah. and there's also the threat of COVID, how much of an issue do you think that's going to be at the college level where suddenly you have a powerhouse like Ohio State or Clemson lose a powerhouse player for whatever reason, have to be replaced by a freshman or, or someone with very little experience? How do you think that's going to impact the season as well? Well, I think, I mean, I think it's a huge concern, right? I mean, you talk about a kid test positive for COVID in the Big Ten. Justin Fields test positive. He's out three games. I mean, yeah. Three of yeah. nine. That's a third yeah. of the season. So I think it's a huge concern. And the cool thing is um, you're going to see a lot of young guys get thrown in the fire and you've seen great successes and great failures on that. But I, I guess I will throw this back at you with, with a response question of just, I don't want know that you want to get into the details of the big tens, I guess, guidelines or regulations. Yeah. But I, I think that there's, there's going to be some uh, chess games played here where if all of a sudden, let's say uh, Trevor Lawrence tests positive for COVID, all of a sudden it's all about percentages of tests. Do they start testing him more to get the game canceled? Or, do they, or if it's just a backup and you, you clear that threshold, do they test the rest of the week all the kids that don't have it to make that percentage go down? I think there's going to be a chess game here of how to play or not play to your advantage. There's 100%. Well, yeah. I mean, if you if you know how sport works, right? You're right. Keeping, you ain't trying, right? right. Like, you know, like there's no way that you're that that's not gonna happen. I mean, right. people are gonna figure out the ways to play, especially if it, if they're you know if it works to their advantage. And that actually brings me to another another question, uh, to, in terms of the, kind of just in terms of the Big Ten coming back, and you have, you had mentioned this a lot on social media and on your show as well, but just like what the impact of recruiting would, that this would have or maybe still did have on recruiting because a lot of these, especially for Ohio State. Um, or maybe not even just for Ohio State, maybe for like the next tier of Big Ten schools, right, who are trying to get to that Ohio State level. Ohio State will always get guys. But what do you think the impact of recruiting was, would have been or maybe still is now um, yeah. with the, in the Big Ten versus the SEC and, and the Southern schools? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think what's cool is, well, initially I think it was catastrophic and people you know, really called me a doomsday negative guy because I really believe it was going to be catastrophic with long-term effects. Not this mm -hmm. class, maybe not next class, but I, I've said it a dozen times. There's a 12-year-old in South Florida right now that sees the Big Ten cancel. His uncles and people are, are telling him that, man, they don't even like football up there. That kid turns 16 and is getting recruited. He's been told for six years that the Big Ten's kind of B-league. Their math is off, man. Yeah. Four years. 
And, and it's like <laughs> that, that was going to impact them long term. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and then it, you, you, you spin it now. And I, in my opinion, there's no greater recruiting ploy ever than what Wyatt Davis and, and uh, Sean Wade just did. You have these guys, Jamar Chase, Rondale Moore, Rashad Bateman, uh, Micah Parsons, all these guys opting out, looking for a reason to not play. And then Ohio State has two bona fide first rounders fight, not only opting back in, but they're doing protests. Like Justin Fields creates a petition. Yeah. These kids want to play so bad in Columbus that they're fighting to play. Other schools, yeah. they're like running to not play. Mm, and I think yeah. I think what just happened was the biggest flip in a, a, a probable recruiting disaster mm. to one of the greatest tools in recruiting ever. So, okay, let, let's, let's take this out. Take away the recruiting part and the Ohio yeah. State benefit part. Do you think that Sean Wade and Wyatt Davis made the right decision with everything that's going on to come back to Ohio State? If you well, take away your personal personal feelings. I, so I, I just looked at it, right? And I really looked at the landscape. And if I'm Sean Wade, so Wyatt Davis, I think, was 50-50. Uh, yeah. he, he wanted to come back to win a national championship. He was NFL ready. He was a bona fide first rounder. Sean Wade was on the, I don't want to say on the bubble. He was probably a late first, early second rounder. So yeah. he wanted to come back to be a top 10 pick, right? But then you look at what happened and, and why, and I even shot him a message, just food for thought. Who's he going to cover this year? The, the best receiver in the, in the Big Ten on paper, right, let, that's not on Ohio State's roster, was a kid at Minnesota, opted out. Rondell Moore opted out. Nico Collins opted out. So he's covering no one in conference play. Now you look at Clemson. They don't have an outside receiver worth a damn. Justin Ross, gone. T. Higgins, gone. And then you look at the only team, let's say, that he could play with a bona fide receiver is Alabama. So now you're looking at, the one, the chance he's going to play Alabama. Could happen, right? But even if he does, that's one game where he has to cover an NFL receiver. He's going to look so dominant in his, in his resume mm. this year. He might be top five. Mm. So I, if, I was, mm. if I was Sean Wade, I'm coming back because I'm about to just eat like crazy. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so let's talk, about, let's talk about the landscape of college football because some people have played already. Some people, the SEC is, is, is coming up. Um, obviously, the Big Ten is coming up. Even the Pac-12 is talking about potentially coming back. Right. Who is actually good? Who is? I mean, Ohio State, Clemson, Alabama, we know, right? Yep. Who else is actually even in the conversation? I know Oregon theoretically could have been. Who else yeah. is even in the conversation? De'Ara King is looking like the truth down in Miami. Too. Yeah, he is. Are they back? He definitely is. So I, th I, think, I think the ACC, barring a, a – train wreck uh, Notre Dame is not built to play with Clemson they're not their quarterback is just average at best and that's me being nice yeah. um, North Carolina I had high hopes Sam Howell's a really good player but they they were kind of lackluster in their first game so I think the ACC is pretty much sealed up I'm with you Derek King uh, against Louisville was phenomenal which is mm -hmm. great to see and, and it's the first time Miami's looked like a functional football team and I don't know how long right, right. yeah so I think you really look you really look at the SEC, right? I think Alabama is a clear-cut favorite. I think Auburn's going to be a really good team. Georgia has a chance. I really like their young receiver. I, Dewan Mathis getting named the starter is unbelievable. Committed mm -hmm. to Ohio State forever, and right. then ends up flipping. And he, they go think about it. They go in with two transfer solidified quarterbacks. Transfer in, it's going to be a battle. One of them opts out, the other one gets beat out, and here's this young kid, Dewan Mathis, is going to be a starter. So I think wow. they're a contender. Florida's definitely a contender with Kyle Trask and Dan Mullen. And then the Big 12 is going to be interesting to watch. I think Oklahoma and Texas are obviously the the, the top dogs. I, I picked Oklahoma State as my dark horse, and they really look terrible this weekend. We're going to have their quarterback on her first drive. Almost everyone's looking terrible right that, now. That's a fact. So I don't know. I mean, I, th I think the reality is you're looking at Ohio State, Clemson, and then 
two SEC teams, or unless Oklahoma can just run off, you know, make a run. But I'm not ready to crown them. They don't have a run game. They don't, you know, that their their quarterback situation is TBD. You know, so yeah, I, I do think Alex Grinch will have the defense better. That's been their their Achilles heel for you know the last whatever. 30 years. <laughs> right. So is there anybody in the Big Ten outside of Ohio State that's that's even remotely a threat? Because the other issue with playing uh, – if Ohio State goes 9-0, they're going to get a benefit of the doubt because they also have the name and the brand recognition. But if another team yeah. goes 9-0, let's just say, or, uh, maybe they won't. Maybe it's Wisconsin or somebody. like Maybe they won't necessarily get that. But, as the, but maybe I'm overlooking some teams in the Big Ten. I mean, I think Penn State's the the – the, the one team that has a chance, right? I mean, yeah. I, I like I like their quarterback. I like their running backs. I like their offense. I mean, James Franklin always has them ready to compete. It's just mm. a matter of, are they ready to take that next step? I don't think mm. so. But yeah. if you had to pick one, that's who I'd pick. And it's just sad to see the Big Ten landscape where it is today. I mean, yeah. you'd love to throw it at Wisconsin or Nebraska or someone in there, or God forbid, Michigan, be competitive. Right. But right. your whole team's just quitting to play intramurals. <laughs> <laughs> so, so and then go ahead. So CFP final four, who you got? Um, I'm gonna. I mean, this is. I don't like being going with like the status quo picks, but I can't pick against Ohio State, Clemson, or Alabama, and then I'll probably put Florida in as the fourth team. And wow. you know, you really I, I like think, Florida then? I do. I mean, if they if they're able to go undefeated and lose to Alabama close in the SEC championship game, I think that there's a legitimate three-team race in the Big 12 that could kind of knock each other out of it. And a, a one-loss Florida team gets in over a one-loss Texas or Oklahoma, in my opinion, if it's to Alabama, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Wow. Well, I think like you said at the beginning of this, of this that, you know, there's still skepticism on what's going to happen with this season and wh whether people are going to play or not or, or if this season is going to get finished. I mean, I'm, I'm opt cautiously optimistic, I guess you could say. Um, but we'll see what, what ends up happening. But – um, thanks for joining us. And obviously, as, as this thing continues, we'll continue talking about it. But uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I appreciate I'm definitely it, fellas. In it. Yeah, enjoy, man, and uh, be safe out here. All right, you too, Rope. All right, take All care. Right. All right, see you. Ondo Media here in Columbus has been working with us to keep the Pilot Boys in production during the pandemic, as well as getting our YouTube videos going. It's all about telling your story to your audience. So give John at Ondo Media a shout. You can find all of their media consulting at ondomedia.com. Listen to the Pilot Boys podcast. Time to hit some news and notes. Are you ready? Let's get it. So let's talk about. Let's start with uh, the NFL. Man, the NFL kicked off um, two weeks. Very impressive that they've had zero COVID cases amongst their players the last couple of weeks. I think that's that's <laughs> yeah. Well, as far as they report, that's extremely <laughs> impressive. Just considering yeah. the fact that they're all in different cities, yeah, following essentially different protocols, doing different testing. So that's been good, but. The sad thing is that there have been a ton of injuries. I mean, you have Saquon Barkley's out for the year. You know, Christian McCaffrey's out for a while. Courtney Sutton's out for the year. Um, Mike I mean, Mike, Mike Thomas got hurt. I mean, just big names. Devontae, yeah. Devontae Adams got hurt. Raheem Mostert. I mean, just just a ton of big names. Uh, we talked a little bit with Zach about this already. Um, but it seems as though just that the kind of the no preseason, no offseason has just just made these guys' bodies not ready for this. Yeah. I mean, people talk, want to talk all the time about the value of training camp and the value of preseason. The biggest thing is in the conditioning, right? The NFL offseason is long and no guy is, you know, some guys are obviously doing everything they need, but it's a long offseason and guys mm -hmm. do not ever get into full shape until they start taking hits and start actually playing. 
And we're seeing with the shortened offseason, they only had a month, that injuries are taking effect. Right? And I know and, guys hate the preseason. Some guys hate, like, well, not necessarily hate the preseason, but hate the idea of four games. But it really isn't until the preseason. Um, and even some of the, even before, like, even before that was some of, like, the joint practices where you really get that full speed go, you know, to just go straight from practicing yeah. and, you know, doing a little things here and there to all of a sudden going to full speed against other guys who are going full speed. That's a, a, a totally different ball game. So, I mean, that's something that I think is somewhat predictable, and I think I expect them to continue. Um, yeah. And so we just, you know, you know, pray you for worry, everybody. You, what we worry about is the combined effect, right? If if the winter gets bad and we start seeing COVID cases, in addition to these rash of injuries, how that's going to impact the season and the games and, and, and the quality of the product. Yeah. So for now, I mean, I guess, you know, I, I'll say I'm, I'm grateful that it's back because I, I, you know, obviously I enjoy the sport, but I'm also, you know, kind of sad to see these guys, you know, so early in the season having this type of having these type of injuries. And, you know, again, these people are people. Yeah, they get paid a lot, but they are people. You don't want to see people tearing up their body, um, you know, when maybe they didn't necessarily have to or if there was a better way to do it. So we'll see. I, I, like you said, I think the the COVID thing is not necessarily done as it pertains to the NFL. But um, and that could be an issue later. But so far, they've had that pretty much under control. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about. uh some more pop like society stuff. So Ruth, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the notorious RVG, uh, as people call her Supreme court justice, uh, pioneer in many different ways. Uh, she passed away. And now it's just like, there's, it's, it's interesting because they're not that many people. And we, I feel like we t- we've had this conversation on this show many times. <laughs> like they're not that many people in society left that have like, that have had that tremendous amount of impact on so many different people. Hers was probably even another level because she helped influence kind of the laws and, and the way that this, the land, the lay of the land, like what yeah. we under live under. That's different than just like, oh, cultural impact. Yeah. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? And then obviously, what, what are your thoughts on what happens with the Supreme Court next? I mean, a couple of things stand out, right? We're, we're, we're in a time right now where I think our society and our citizens are very dissatisfied with our public officials those that hold office and represent us. I think what stands out about Ruth Bader Ginsburg is the fact that she understood what her role as a public servant, as a Supreme Court justice was, first and foremost, as a service, a servant to the people and to the community, right? If all of our politicians and all of our public officials, nobody's perfect, we all have our flaws, but at least had that attitude, which was, I'm in this role to serve others, not serve myself, I think that we wouldn't have a lot of the problems that we have. And it's sad to see that generation with her passing away, with John McCain passing away, people that kind of had that in them. And now we're seeing just the division. We can't even get a stimulus bill passed. They're not thinking about us first. And I think seeing her pass hopefully reminds these people of what they're there to do. And it doesn't seem like that's happening because, you know, right now there's now there's the discussion about whether they should wait to pick the Supreme Court justice or not. And the Republicans are, are not waiting. And even yeah. against some of their own words that they've said before, I believe that the prudent thing to do is to wait. I think that's just kind of how it's customarily done. Uh, but if they're going to do that, then and then, you know, instead of just yelling at us on Twitter, like, this is so wrong. This is what they're doing. The Democrats need to do something, yeah. you know, figure like Fine. that's. That's the annoying thing that I that that about for me about the Democratic Party is if you don't agree, 
then don't just come and tell us on Twitter how much you don't agree. Go yeah. and do something, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, this is, this is the, the saddest thing about this, and this goes to the point that you just made about the stimulus, is that these, this fight now may take precedence um, because it's so political, right? And there's so much at stake here with who, who they pick in terms of what the laws of this land is actually going to be and what yeah. this country is going to look like moving forward. That stimulus, getting money in the hands of people, figuring out how to stimulate the economy, is like going to take a back seat. And I, I ultimately don't think they're even going to get a deal done as a result. And I think, you know, a lot of, there's been a lot of, lots said about this. There's been noise around, we need RBG to survive because that could change the landscape of the Supreme Court. But I think a lot of us don't fully understand or know, we might have a superficial understanding of the importance of the Supreme Court in our, in our governance. So if you could just kind of highlight, you know, what, this, why this is so important and why well, the Supreme Court is so, so important. Well, and, so I, so essentially it's this. I mean, you have, you know, different branches of government. We all learn, well, hopefully we all yeah. learn this in, in high school. But there <laughs> yeah. are three different bran branches of government, the way our government is set up. You have the legislative branch, which is, you know, Congress, right? And they write the laws, right? And then you have the executive branch, which is, you know, essentially the president or in your state, it's the governors all the way down to the mayors who executes laws and then you have the judicial branch who is who interprets the laws and the judicial branch the highest branch uh, the highest judicial uh, entity is the supreme court so they're the ones that help kind of determine what the laws of the land interpret what the laws of the land are going to be so for roe v, roe v wade and all these other important decisions brown versus board of education these are all decisions that came down from the supreme court and influenced literally Influence, whether or not you're allowed to have abortions, whether or not you're allowed to have schools that are segregated, whether or not gay marriage is legal. I mean, these are things that come from essentially the Supreme Court. And all of these different branches are supposed to kind of be checks on each other, right? Mm -hmm. So if one, if one is getting out of hand or if another one is, is, is trying to abuse their power, these, these three entities are all exist to kind of balance yeah. and check the other one. Um, so in terms of the, the, the Supreme Court itself, there are nine justices and those cases are, there's, there is no court higher than them. So you can't appeal to another court. So what they decide is what's essentially what's law. And um, so when you have different things that are, I mean, different cases that are being challenged all the time, you have affirmative action cases that are being challenged. You have, you know, uh, abortion and, and uh, th those things being challenged, gay marriage. These are, these are decisions that are going to be either be challenged or are currently going to be decided by the court. So what style or type of, um, justice you have on that court um, and, you know, whether it leans conservatively or it leans liberally or whatever, however you want to define it, really determine, really is very important to determine what the laws of the land are going to be. So this is not one of those things where it's like, oh, okay, well, you know, we'll just deal with it as if, if it happens. Whoever that justice is could literally be responsible for tipping the scales and that's a lifetime appointment. That's not something that you, you know, you, you serve and you, you have to get voted in the next four years. That's life for life. So those things have, those decisions have lasting impact on our society. So um, that's the reason why it's such a big deal and why it's such an uproar. And for people who play politics, that, that's all they care about. You know, mm -hmm. they don't care about, the, they care about get, pushing their agenda and who yeah. is the person best suited to push their agenda. And that's where we are right now. We've been there already, but this one is the big one. You know, you know this one is the big one. So now there's going to be discussion about whether or not they should wait. And the, the Republicans are like, we're not waiting. Because yep. we're going to do what was best for us, you know? And so yep. it's going to be... And the Democrats have to figure out if they want to win this fight, they have to win the fight. 
right? Like you they said, have to fight. Yeah. they actually have to fight. You can't just sit back and say, "Oh, this is so wrong. This is, this isn't right." They happened, you know, when they didn't let Obama appoint a justice when he was in his full legal right to do so, a full mm-hmm. year before the election. So now they have to they have to play the politics and 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 win this win this battle now that the roles have been reversed. Well, the other thing too is is you know, and one of those things is people will say, well, what are the things they can specifically do? Well, one of the things that um, if Biden was to win, uh, one of the things that he can do, even if they do appoint a, a justice, is he has the power to expand the number of justices on the court. So that could be another a, a thing that they they do. So this is this is a battle that is not going to be done, you know, anytime yeah. soon. But uh, but but again, it moves me to what we were just uh, we were talking about. Also, is now the stimulus, right? So there is no stimulus. Uh, there's you know this has been months, and people are out here struggling. And there's you know in certain certain areas, there's more COVID surging, which is leading to potentially more lockdowns. Definitely internationally, in UK and other places, and maybe locally, we'll start to see that. Um, and there's not necessarily an end in sight that we can see, but yet they're still playing this political game with no stimulus. Yeah, it's just, it's it's really sad, and it's a r- reminder of why I'm very, I'm disenfranchised from our political system, I'll be honest, because of this, right? It's like, you have a role right now. Things are happening in this country to your citizens. Your role as a representative is to represent your citizens. So your primary objective is to make sure your citizens are okay. Your citizens, small businesses are struggling, individuals are struggling, and there's a lot of uncertainty because this stimulus is going to also determine whether or not many employees continue to have jobs. For example, in the airline industry, if they don't expand the, the stimulus, you're talking about multiple millions of people who now are going to lose their jobs, adding to the number. So if that's not your priority, then what are what's happening here? What are we... Why are you guys in office? Like, what exactly is there? Seems like a lot of people here are very disconnected from what's actually happening in day to day society. You know, they'll say what they have to say and do what they have to do to get elected, and then once they get elected, they just you know are pushing forth their own agenda, figuring out a way to advance themselves in politics. They're not really caring so much, and the consequences are real. And that's why voting. Some people don't think it's important. I, I think it's very important because that, at the end of the day, that is the only consequence left for elected yep. officials is them being voted out. So yeah, if, if, and, yep. And your yeah. choice sometimes has to be the between the between two bad choices, but you still have to make the better choice. Hundred percent. That's that's the thing. Like the fact that people are sitting here thinking that you have to have a great choice in order to vote is just that's nonsense. That's not how life works, you know. Yeah. And and not even just in politics and many other circumstances as well that's not just how life works and so you have to be an adult about this thing yeah you don't have to love it but you have to be an adult about it and handle it a certain way vote vote for people younger politicians get some of these old old heads out of there like that can happen through the voting process yeah so let's move on to the nba uh the nba is the playoffs are, are interesting obviously i think it's probably more interesting in the east um just considering you know, the kind of the closeness of competition between Miami and Boston it didn't look like it at first. Um, but, you know, that that has a probably a more interesting series. I think the the more interesting, but the biggest storyline really is what happened to the Clippers. You yeah. know, I think, Clippers. you know, it's just like there's so many things that are interesting about that. First of all, you have Hall of Fame coach, right? You have, you know, one of the best players in the NBA, if not the best in Kawhi you know, definitely in the argument for being the best and someone who has 
you know, one of the few people that has that had some type of goat potential argument. You have Paul George, you have, you know, Lou Williams, you have defensive stoppers, you got big guys in the middle. I mean, you have a team that you felt like could compete. Denver, we always knew was scary. Utah, Denver and Utah, those teams, we always knew they were scary because they're just built well. They're like really well-built teams and they play hard and they're not scared. But the Clippers got to win that series, man. Yeah, I mean, look, let me start by the one thing that I will say for them, right? It is a new team put together mm-hmm. this year. Never having played together, they dealt with a lot of injuries. They didn't have cohesiveness, even in lineups. So let's put that aside there, right? Mm-hmm. And then the season took a break. They had to come back in the bubble. But they didn't deal with anything that anyone else wasn't dealing yep. with. No, forget that excuse. Mm-hmm. As far as where we're at here, I think, first of all, Paul George is showing you have an option. I mean, him and James Harden are kind of in the same boat. What do you do when it actually matters? You're making money like you're one of the top five players in the NBA. Mm-hmm. You've got to show up. Yeah. You've got to be the guy that when everything is down and out, you take your team over the top. And if you looked at that series and you look at Paul George, he needs to go see a sports psychologist because it's apparent when you watch this guy play in these big games that he is not living up to the moment. Well, and it's interesting. And I heard after the game, he had tried to give some type of speech, speech and he got <laughs> This wasn't out. supposed to be the year. Yeah, I rolled. He got eye rolled by his teammates. I mean, you know, here's the thing about Paul George. And, you know, I always try to make my comments about athletes and I try to keep them in context, right? So he's obviously a great player. He's obviously one of the yeah. greatest players in the world, right? No NBA player is a scrub just by definition. Yeah. on what we think there's it comes down to what we think their skill set is so we we evaluate these guys based on what we think their skill set is and then sometimes when you're making these discussions it's not about whether guys are good or bad but it's about are they living up to what we believe that their skills and their potential is i always was a little bit slightly overrated i always thought he was kind of a Le- lebron wannabe right and, yeah. and and it's not a bad thing he's obviously great but i'm talking i just always felt like he was just always getting a little bit too much credit i didn't really think that he was ready for the moment i felt like he was just trying to be something yeah um and ultimately this is this is why you have to give guys like lebron and obviously you know mike and kobe and larry bird and these guys there's a difference between the mentality of like listen we may lose i'm not saying we, we, we can never lose but we're not going out like that. You know what I yeah. mean? Like that's, 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 we're not going out like that. And yes, they all have bad losses on their resume. All these other guys do. And, but you can't lose game seven. Like they lost. And Kawhi, come on, Kawhi, come on, Kawhi. Yeah. You want to be in that conversation. Look, you, you are the leader of the team. You are the alpha dog. Paul George is second. It's known. You are the guy that's potentially MVP of the league. You are the guy that people are, are putting in the same class as LeBron and Mike and all those other people. And potentially it's a good argument. Come on, come on, bro. Like, let's go, let's go. Yeah, where, and, where and, and you played badly that game. The, the one thing that I'll say is that we can look at Kawhi and say that that was an aberration from how he's played in every big game we've ever seen him play, right? So, but you can't say the same for Paul George. And then the second part of this conversation that's important is, is Doc Rivers as good of a coach as he gets credit for being? Because if you look at that team he had in Boston, they only won one ring, right? They got beat. The following year, 
he gets to the Clippers, has had Chris Paul, Blake Griffin. This is the second go around for him having superstar talent on his team. Can he get them over the top? There's no coach. He's blown three, three, one series leads in the playoffs. Yeah, it's a legit question. question, And I I, I like Doc Rivers, but it's a legit, it it is a legit question. And so I guess the last question on this is how do you ultimately see this, this playing out? Who wins? Do the Lakers win this thing easily? Or is there, is the competition out of the East being underrated in terms of the challenge it will be? Well, I think we're really seeing how fucking good Anthony Davis is, right? Mm -hmm. Like these playoffs, that guy is, you add him with LeBron, obviously we know LeBron, we talked about him, talked about him, talked about him. Anthony Davis is unstoppable. He's mm-hmm. an unstoppable player in the NBA. Mm-hmm. You haven't seen it. Like Kevin Durant is close, but Anthony Davis is actually seven feet and big and strong and can play center, can play power forward, can play small forward. Like, I don't think that the Lakers aren't are, are going to be stopped before they get to the finals. We love the Nuggets. I think they're a year or two away from fully being there. But if Boston and Miami keep playing the way that they're playing, I think we have a really interesting finals, especially with Gordon Hayward back in Boston, because your argument is that both Miami and Boston are deeper teams. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just they don't have the experience yet right? Yeah. in the finals. And we'll see how that happens. But Anthony Davis hasn't been in the finals yet either. So it makes for an interesting. And Jimmy Butler's a killer. I don't, yeah, care what, what, I don't care what he's played in. He's yeah, a that team and, and Spolstra and Riley, like you just have to give that organization credit for continuing to rebuild and continuing to keep that team relevant. Obviously being in Miami is a huge part of getting, getting players there. But yeah, I mean, I think, and, 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 and I think, you, I think you made a point too, that I want to make sure I touch on too, is that Denver is a real team. Like they, they should yeah. not be overlooked. They still have a chance. And they're yeah. also not someone that should feel like, oh yeah, you just beat Denver. Like, no, they're very, they're actually a very. Come back from three one twice. Yeah, like, that. Yeah, is, they have heart too. Is an accomplishment in itself. And if it wasn't for Kobe Bryant, they probably wouldn't go game two. Right, <laughs> right. Against <laughs> the Kobe. Yeah. All right. Last thing on news and notes: fantasy football. And of course, this week we have our first showdown. We uh, actually play each other. We're both actually one and one in the league. Last week you lost by one point, which was crazy. Uh, I think you had kickers that uh, the kicker Goskowski or whoever it was missed a bunch of kicks. And had he made those, you would have won. Um, but you bounced back this week and won, had a big week. Iox actually lost bounced last back. week, bounced back, had a big week. Now we are headed to play each other. And the projections have you projected to win by 0. 0.6 points. How do you see this weekend playing out? Well, it's interesting. I think uh, last week, People were looking at our teams and kind of laughing, mm-hmm. saying that we didn't have a chance. Then they saw our point totals this week, and we're like, wow, these guys have have good teams. And, of course, mm-hmm. we've got to play each other. There's a big difference between being one and two and two yeah. and one, yeah. especially with the injuries and waiver situation that's going yeah. on. I think uh, I'm, a, I'm excited because I think both of our teams are healthy, which is important. A lot mm-hmm. of teams aren't healthy, um, but I think it's a good matchup. And and that that scoreline tells it all. Points. Yeah. points. I, so, I'm nervous just because my I have my you know my guys have bad matchups this week. I have you know I have Tyreek Hill and and Kelsey going against Baltimore, which is not that's that's not it's like the worst matchup you could have. Yeah. Um, and then Deshaun Watson, who hasn't necessarily been playing that well, but part of it is because the defense he's playing now, he has to play Pittsburgh. It's like, okay, I, it's I don't expect my guys to explode this week, so. 
Um, I'm nervous about that, but I do like my team, you know, and um, your team is stacked. I think the biggest issue for you is going to figure out who to play because you have a lot of you have a lot of depth, especially at the receiver yeah. position. So I think that I could was be thinking about making trades this week and then all these injuries happen. I'm like, maybe I'm not making and you know me, I trade all the time. I'm not making a trade this week. People think I'm kidding. I'm not making a trade unless somebody comes to me with something that's like I can't refuse. Yeah, I, can't I, can't, even, I can't even trade James White. Like I can't trade anybody like literally because anyone can go down any he, week. Yeah, exactly. And even though the, I have Matt Ryan and Deshaun Watson, I was going to trade one of them. I was like, like nah, uh-uh. Yeah. Because because both of those guys are like top seven, top eight, top eight, maybe even top six. Um, yeah. And, you know, the Drew Locke went out this week and Tyrod Taylor got hurt and just, you know, guys, even quarterbacks are getting hurt. So, no. Yeah, everyone, every position, running backs, wide receivers, quarterbacks, like if you have depth, Yes, that's our, our our tidbit of advice for all the fantasy players. Keep your depth. Keep depth. Keep depth. And, and, and this is just from injuries. We haven't even started to deal with what could potentially happen with COVID. So keep depth. But anyway, uh, we'll let you guys know what happens uh, next week. And that's all we have for news and notes. Love the Pilot Boys podcast? Support us on Patreon. Supporters can pledge as little as $1. We have some cool perks on there. Check out www.patreon.com forward slash pilot boys podcast. Show us some love today. That's all we have for today's show. Big thanks to our guests, Columbus Woodruff and Zach Smith. Thanks to everybody for listening. Don't forget, sharing is caring. Subscribe to the Pilot Boys podcast on Apple, Spotify, Patreon, and YouTube. And please follow us on social media at Pilot Boys Pod on Twitter and at Pilot Boys Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And follow the hosts on Twitter. I am at Mechadon Music and V is at Piswant. And don't forget, grab some Pilot Boys wristbands and face masks at shop.pilotboys.com. Always remember, be you. You was fly. Pilot Boys out. <laughs>